granddad gave me. They say one day they're gonna round up. Well, that shit might fly in the city. Good luck. Try that in a small town. See how far you make it down the road. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of the show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber. It's episode 296 in our network. And before I bring in Jim, just want to pay a special thanks to our audience, 50,000 and growing, 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices. We appreciate your support. Make sure after this show, give Jim five stars, write some nice comments. Make sure you get back to him and ask him questions. He'll answer them right on the air for you or in person. That way we can keep battling the podcast world analytics just like we do in Major League Baseball. And because of your support, again, we are now the latest streaming podcast network on iHeartRadio. Continue to listen on our old streaming devices as well, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. But let's flood iHeart. Let them know that they got the right choice with us when they called us up to the big leagues a few weeks back. To uh, To our audience also, we will have our affiliates up this week, so our supporting businesses almost 250, uh, maybe more actually, now that I'm counting, uh, you will receive special discounts because of their support for the show and your support. And then as a result, that'll allow us to, to support our podcast hosts in the very near future. So we appreciate uh, the relationship we're building with our audience and we'll continue to help you get what you want. You continue to help us get what we want. We'll keep giving you great content like we do every week on Toe the Rubber. And with that, Jim, welcome back to your show. Thank you, Dave. Hello, everybody. Hope everyone's doing well. I know we've got some pitching kinetics today. Um, wanted to give a little, I, I picked up a little pop culture last night. Uh, thought I'd share it with you since you've got two young kids um, as well. I've got four and I'm always trying to keep up with them. Uh, at the park last night, uh, my older son is getting some extra at-bats in the rec league. They, they have a high school rec league. Tanner's taking a little bit of the, the next few weeks off just to rest his body. And we're, we're working on a couple of things, but in the cage, uh, throwing the blue, my older son, getting some work ready and lefty. Uh, Tanner was catching a bullpen for a, uh, for a high school kid and he was walking over and my stat guy for our one-on-one, we just finished our season one-on-one. We played a wood bat, total wood bat, uh, spring and summer, Memorial day to labor day. And he came in with the stats. Uh, it was great. And I just said, well, read them off to me. And Blue had a nice season. The first full season of wood bats hit 312 uh, for six, I think, on base average, switch batter, played center short third for us, uh, did, did a nice job. He's a 2027 grad. It's a 2025 team. Tanner, who's a 2028 grad, a year younger, caught for us, played a little second, um, actually a lot of second this year, was our leadoff guy and uh, led us in hitting this year as a 2028 grad. Switch batter also hit 321, I believe. I think it was 536 or 526 on base average, somewhere around there. And uh, the young kid who does it for me, we treat it as an internship. I write it up. He's like, uh, Tanner's the sauce. And I don't know what the heck that means. Do you know what that means? No, I mean, I've heard of sauce gardener. So I guess it must be pretty gotta, good. Something. Gotta be something. He says he's the sauce. And I'm like, well, what, what's the sauce? And I just stopped because I want to learn too. I'm trying to, I'm 50 years old. I got to stay up with these kids. And he's like, well, you know, if you got the juice, it's temporary. You know, you, anyone can get the juice. I felt like I was on the Jerry Maguire episode with Quan, the mm-hmm. master of Quan. He's like, yeah, anybody can get the juice. I mean, you could 
you'd get a cool cell phone, you'd get a nice car and you'd be like, oh man, he's got the juice. Cause he's like, so I was like, okay, I, I get it. But he's like, well, the juice is temporary. You know, it comes and goes. People can have the juice on Monday, not on Tuesday. I said, he's like, but the sauce, I thought this was the cool thing. The sauce is forever. <laughs> okay. And uh, it made me smile. I learned a little something from them and uh, figure I'd share it with you on the show. So if, if Seamus comes home and he's got the sauce, that's a good thing. He didn't, he didn't steal it from the neighbor's stove. Yep. Sounds good. So, but uh, with, with that little sidebar, see, I, I took you off track in the beginning that we can stay on track the whole show, but uh, pitching kinetics here, give us a little recap of the last few shows. Cause all your shows kind of flow seamlessly. You got a loyal audience, but kind of give them a synopsis, catching them up and then share a little bit what you mean by pitching kinetics. Um, yes. The last couple of shows, I mean, we talked about uh, arm actions and positioning the elbow uh, we go back to the uh, hip mobility, spinal stability, and scapular stability. We went over some of that. Uh, previously, we had conversations about the uh, age-old questions. When should my son or daughter start pitching? When should they start throwing curveballs? Um, we kind of hit on those facets of, of the initial stages of learning how to pitch. <clears throat> um, lately, we've discussed... We kind of centered one show around that uh, 13, 14, 15 in high school ages as far as uh, different arm actions, correcting certain arm actions, exercise prescription, throwing drills, uh, actual specifics about what we're doing. I followed each one of those shows up with uh, individual posts on uh, Facebook at Rooney Baseball, trying to go into a little bit more detail. Uh one uh, one listener asked for some videos. That's a work in progress. Uh, Got to make sure I'm working with the uh, the right young guy that is doing things properly at this stage of the game as far as to express it to the audience. Um, and then it brought us to this week. So I saw a post the other day, and, uh, and of course, I, I responded to it with uh, a little bit of my humor, but... Uh, Concerned the uh, the all star closer for the Houston Astros, Billy Wagner, and um, the audience hadn't realized when he was a senior in high school, he was five foot five, a hundred and thirty five pounds. Now, if that's at a senior in high school at seventeen or eighteen years old, just imagine what he might have been when he was ten, eleven, or twelve. I don't think he was uh, one of the largest guys in the room, so to speak. He had no Division One offers, not even any interest, a peak, a phone call, anything. He played at Division Three, Furnham College. And later on in his career, became a seven-time Major League Baseball All-Star with 400 career saves. And I would fathom that a majority of our audience knows who Billy Wagner is, or at least watched him throw. This is a guy that consistently threw in the upper 90s. Um, I don't have the actual stats of what he grew into, but I'm going to say he was probably 5'10", 205 pounds, 5'9", 205 pounds. I mean, he was uh, he was put together physically as an adult. Um, so it just, it just triggers in my mind what we're doing to uh, – 
10, 11, 12 year olds, we've had these conversations. The rise in Tommy John's in the age group of 13 to 15 years old. You talk to any medical professional, uh, some of the leading physical therapists that see this, these, these uh, rehabs coming to their office, all the groundwork for, for those type of injuries are, are usually dating back to when they're 9, 10, 11, 12 years old and either abuse or improper throwing mechanics or just physically not ready to be a pitcher or all the things that we've discussed in the past that occur. And yet every weekend, I'm continually hit with parents or coaches or watching travel ball games and kids are pitching two to three games on a weekend. It, it just doesn't really make any sense to me. Um, now, do you know Billy Wagner? He's he was a left-handed reliever, and uh, that he's not a natural left-hander. I, that was one of the uh, things I found. I can't remember where I, I I heard it on a broadcast way back when. But he was a natural righty, and when he grew up working on the farm, he developed his left hand when he was bailing hay. That hook that you put in to lift it. He started doing that left-handed to build up his left arm and left side to get stronger. And that's how he ended up developing into a left-handed pitcher. Interesting story. It goes hand in hand with some of our um, discussions in the past of of doing manual labor. Yeah. Not how it improves the whole whole body as far as full body mechanics and teaching and learning the body uh, how to move properly. It also shows you that we had this discussion where we've dealt with hitters or pitchers in the past. Let's say that they're lefty batters or lefty throwers, but they're naturally right-handed and how they have improper hip mobility or improper hip function in the throwing or hitting mechanic and what needed to be worked on. Here he is bailing hay on the left side. So I'm sure after an hour bailing hay, if his hips weren't working properly, he'd be you know, in a lot of aches and pains. So it just shows how doing manual labor and doing full body type kinetic close chain movements is beneficial in long-term development. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he was moving, he was moving as a righty all day long. Cause we, we all move with our dominant side and hand and foot naturally, but making that a deliberate effort, I'm sure he was, wasn't bailing hay for five minutes. I'm sure it was a six, seven, eight hour a day job. Uh, that that certainly balanced out his body, and I, I don't remember him having injuries throughout his career. Not to say that it's there's a direct correlation between bailing hay with the opposite hand and, and whatnot. But there there is a little bit, but uh, he, uh, he he stayed pretty much injury free. I believe so. I believe so. I mean, during the course of a career, the extended career that he had, I'm sure there's been aches and pains and maybe some DL stints, but I do not um, remember um, any major injury. Um, but it just gets back to what we, what we end up seeing on the weekend. So I had a uh, new client this week. Um, very good kid, very athletic. And I would say he's 10, 10 years old, 10, 11 years old. And the dad was, um, extremely respectful, very polite. And the dad um, is the head coach for the the travel team um, that the son plays on. It's one of the local establishments here in Fort Mill. And the dad, we had a discussion 
and he said, here's some of the things that he's going to try. He asked if, if I didn't mind him um, listening in and be part. And I said, no, uh, in fact, I uh, encourage it. And, and we're like all dads to be involved in that manner because I might be meeting once or twice a week with your son uh, because of your hectic schedules. Um, and I want you involved in the process, whether it's a mom or dad or anybody just to be involved so that they understand what some of the goals are and some of the things that we're looking for that, that young pitcher to, uh, to learn. I think that's great, Jim. I don't want to mean to interrupt, but the, so you have a kid for what, an hour? Usually at that age, a half hour. Half hour. So if you have them twice a week, that's an hour uh, a week. Three, let's say, you know, let's say four times a week is a lot. Let's say that's two hours. You have them for two hours a week. That parent has them for the other 166 hours. Um, so I like what you're doing. I think that's uh, phenomenal because parents have to be the first educator of their kid. I think it's a great step in that direction. So, uh, but that's, that shows to your confidence level as a, an instructor as well to, to want that. So but I didn't mean to digress, but I don't no, want to be honest. No problem. Well, yeah, I mean, for the biggest reason, because my schedule is, is pretty much full during the week and then I've got my two boys to look after and, and my 10-year-old Seamus is playing some travel ball. Um, so our weekends are busy. Um, in fact, this, uh, we're going to start on Thursday. We're going to head up to, uh, Cal Ripken's place in Pigeon Ford for the weekend, a little mini family vacation. And then the, uh, ball games on Saturday and Sunday. Um, I'm not, I don't have the ability to go and watch any of these clients go pitch in a game. So I, I am relying heavily on the parents, interaction with me also i mean some of them take video and we go over video afterwards but a lot of times it's just through conversation and the parent starts to really understand and comprehend my process of always asking how'd you feel how'd you adjust uh what happened when conflict came what was your thought process so that they're in the process and it's not all about the performance and the numbers and all the other things that people usually talk about so this father um, I mean, he was outstanding and he went over, this is what we try to do. And we're, and we're following the pitch smart guidelines. So this tells me that, you know, they're at least taking the pitch counts into account and, and having, you know, charting pitches and, and things like that. Whereas in a lot of these travel organizations, they're playing in these weekend tournaments that the only thing that matters is how many innings you pitch. It doesn't matter how many pitches you throw per inning or anything like that. Um, so I knew this guy was on top of his game. Um, but if you look at the pitch smart guidelines like we have in the past, those guidelines are set up as a, not the not for the average pitcher as far as talent-wise. It's in the median of individuals that do things properly or don't do things properly. So they're trying to get a happy median of where um, and it's a guideline. And as we've discussed in the past, there's our guideline to start from, but every individual that's pitching on your team is different. So those guidelines are going to vary slightly for each person. And the thing that um, I do understand that in those pitch smart guidelines, when they're talking about, let's say, 10-year-olds, they're they're of the understanding that if a 10 year old throws, you know, 10 pitches, 
it's not necessarily the same as when an 18 year old throws 10 pitches in his, you know, high school championship games. So, so I, I do gather the difference and that that 10 year old could probably, um, he's not generating as much force that there's going to be that wear and tear on that workload, you know, of that elbow and shoulder. But still, I, I still say that, uh, we should be cautious, we should, uh, be cautious here because if you strictly follow the pitch smart guidelines, that young player could throw Saturday morning and then Sunday morning, as long as we fall within the guidelines. Now, if we go back to my pitching coordinator coordinator days, uh, I didn't have minor pitchers pitch back to back an inning, usually a closer until they got the double A ball. Um, so the analogy that came to my mind is on one end, currently in major league baseball, there's a lot of proponents that say that, you know, the pitch counts aren't help helping, you know, people are still getting hurt. And that is true. I don't look upon it that it's the pitch counts that are causing the problem. But we do have to have a trained eye and an understanding that, you know, there's different workloads for different pitches, for different type of games we're pitching in, for situations that we have to pitch out, bases loaded, no out in an inning. It's going to be way more stressful than a one, two, three inning. Throwing 25, 27 pitches an inning is is way more stressful over a three inning period than if I threw the same amount of pitches over 10 innings. I mean, you know, there's other factors that go into play. But my analogy is this. On a major league level, when they're looking to development players, develop players, one of the one of the problems that has arisen is that just the signing bonuses alone, the investment that an organization has placed on an individual is immense. It's immense. And in any business, we're not in the practice of depleting our assets and making them less valuable. So of course, people are going to take a cautionary path. Now, what that path is for me determines the health of the individual long-term, not necessarily the amount of pitches. But we go to a weekend set of baseball games and we're taking a 10 and 11 year old and we're throwing them on Saturday and Sunday. If the parent or the coach, and this is more specifically the coach or that travel ball organization what do they have invested in that child? If the parent takes that child out of their organization, they're just going to replace them with another person, another young player. And even if they can't, what is that? $1,500, $2,000? I would like to see all of us take a look at a young pitcher and say, well, no, I, I got $5 million invested in this guy. 
And if we take that approach, I don't think we'd be pitching them on back-to-back days at 10 and 11 and 12 years old. And to think the Billy Wagner post, what it shows us is the caption on the post was actually, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. But our goal is to play this game that we love playing for as long as we can healthy. That, that's the goal of a, of a child playing baseball. Um, I've had a young left-handed pitcher came to me a couple of years ago. He was 12 years old. He hadn't played baseball for approximately two years because when he was 10 and started pitching, the travel ball coach pitched him so much that he cracked, he cracked the growth plate in his uh, humeral head, in, his, in the upper arm bone. And now he had to rest for that specific time for that to heal properly. Um, so that goes back to when we said, when, when, should our, uh, when should our child start pitching? So we've discussed the growth plates, the levers, the physical maturation level of each individual and how that comes to play. But I had to just um, explain to one of the new clients this week that um, how important the elbow positioning is in the, in the throwing, in the arm action. And if we do it properly, um, we're going to remain healthy. You talked about it in our last show too, about even coming out of the glove, which should come first out of the glove. And you watch that, that when that elbow flies first, you know, there's trouble when that hand comes first. That's, that's a, uh, a more suitable, uh, suitable movement. I got a number for you quick before you go on, just to kind of make your point. The uh, right now to, to the minute major league baseball has had 399 pitchers on the IL this year for a total of 30,546 days. That's cumulative. Cash earned while on the injured list. These are pitchers in Major League Baseball. $575 million plus million this year um, paid to players on the injured list. So um, we, we like to think that at the grassroots level, if money was involved, people would uh, – money being paid back, you know, invested in those kids, they'd have a better idea of total context. So right, you're talking pitch count. You're talking stressful innings. You know, a 25-pitch inning is, is a lot different than a 12-pitch inning. And then, you know, the, the structure of the kid, but also the development of the kid in addition to total innings. There's, there's a whole story that needs to be told around every individual pitcher and outing. You know, what's the weather like? You know, was it, was it so hot? You know, so there's more exertion. Was it, you know, dangerous, wet, slippery? Um, so a lot, a lot of factors to be involved with these kids pitching other than, you know, getting the kid with the pituitary issue to be your pitcher and just let him throw and, and be the greatest 10-year-old team ever to live. And now like that young man, he's got a fractured or broken growth plate and, uh, that's, that's unnecessary and needed. So, um, give, give, I gave the audience a little bit of break to, to regroup, but also to write down notes and, and, and gather themselves for this next phase. So go ahead, Jim. Yes. So I'm, I'm talking with a, a young pitcher and I'm trying to explain to him because we've progressed and he's done well, but every now and then I, 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 I think it's important to drive home a point and it's not for the purpose of striking fear in the individual. Oh, if I don't do this, I'm going to get hurt. You know, it's not, 
it's not a negative reinforcement type of thing, but I explain when the elbow's in the proper position what happens. And through his natural maturation process, what's going to occur and, and what the goals are long-term. Um, it's, it's well documented that external rotation of young, uh, young players, just young individuals, okay, is going to be far less than the external rotation of a 21-year-old. Now, we've discussed the importance of how that hand lays back into external rotation. And that's the really the main one of the main proponents on throwing the ball successfully. And we've discussed how the how the shoulder works and we go from external into internal rotation. Um We've talked about the uh, snapping the bull whip and pretending like your arm doesn't have any muscles, so it's just going for the ride. So if the if the arm for a 10-year-old, let's say the external rotation is, you know, extremely limited to where it's, you know, 100, 100 degrees, you know, a little past 90. So 90 degrees would be that hand right above the elbow and the elbow at shoulder height. Um, so let's say it's 100 degrees, 110 degrees. Well, the natural tendency of that young player attempting to throw the baseball is he doesn't feel as if he's creating enough force. So that pushing or catapult action where the lead with the elbow or the elbow sinks in a little bit starts to take over. And we've discussed how that catapult action, how it increases the force on the on the UCL on the elbow, so we don't want it to occur. Uh, a majority of the younger players that I've seen that have had to have Tommy John, or have already had elbow injuries and had to take time off, has been a result of that catapult action. Um, a lot of them are converted infielders or converted catchers, uh, you know, or. They're not converted as of yet because they're young, but meaning that they play those positions also. So if you're a coach or a parent and you start to fully understand that, one, at 10 years old, you're you're not going to drop easily back into external rotation. But whatever it is, it needs to be done properly so that that progresses as that player starts to mature. So if you know that we're not dropping into external rotation, even the limited rotation we have, and we're starting to attempt to create force with that catapult action, which is natural for a young, young player, then the workload that we're putting on that person's elbow is far greater than if we threw the ball correctly, even in our limited external rotation. Um, and that's a point that I like... I mean, it's kind of, you know, deep in its analysis. And I understand that you're not going to just every day run the mill coach or whatever sees that. But it's a factor that's, that's extremely important when you're considering the fact that, well, I held them to, I held them to two innings or I held them to 22 pitches on Saturday so I can throw them 
75 pitches on Sunday, that's where we run into trouble. Um, if you were taking every 10-year-old on your staff or every 12-year-old, every young pitcher on your staff, <clears throat> and you were to follow the Pitch Smart guidelines, those guidelines are dealing with individuals that are throwing the ball properly, give or take a certain percentage off the median. That's the part that's not getting accomplished when I go to these tournaments or I see these games. Um, you know, it goes hand in hand with what we discussed in the past about um, all of a sudden that pitcher's tiring, he's fatiguing. But in order to get through that inning, the coach who's calling all the pitches now calls more breaking balls. Now we're talking about, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds. I mean, especially with that 14 or 15 age group, because now we're starting to you see more and more of those kids show up and they have three and four pitches that they're working on. And maybe only one of them is halfway decent. And they start to fatigue and all of a sudden the coach starts throwing all the pitches in order to get out of the inning. And yet they're the most strenuous pitches of the outing. And then they're thrown improperly. And we've lost maybe some leg fatigue or whatever, and the hips aren't functioning properly. And now we get, you know, we, we, we head into that danger zone. And that's how these, this stuff starts to come about. Um, some of the things that, that things brings to my attention is um, we talked about the bounce back effect. I named it the bounce back effect where uh, major league organizations see maybe the lack of foundation, the lack of this. And um, I, I said that uh, uh, analytics sometimes is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're continually looking for something that, checks the boxes in your logarithm and sends up the red flag, the, uh, the red flags that let's go see this guy. Well, those are the guys that are going to end up in your organization. Those are the guys that are going to end up on your big league team. And that has promoted this, uh, sellout for velocity, you know, type of, uh, type of mode that we're experiencing right now. And it gets to the big leagues because these are the people they're scouting, evaluating, and developing. And then it bounces back to the lower levels, and we we see, you know, the whether it be the uh, pitch comm system on a ten-year-old team, or the sellout for velocity, or the cross symmetry training for a nine-year-old when he can't even, you know, bend down and pick up a box correctly. And these negativities start bouncing back and forth. The trends start going in those directions because, you know, that's the only thing we're dealing with. So for the audience, there's a couple of things. First off, developing pictures on a whole is difficult. Um, There are many, many Major League Baseball organizations that have struggled with this over the years regardless of the protocols they used, whether it was analytics, whether it was old school, whether it was that. Um, Some people take the pitch counts and then that becomes the crutch 
instead of the actual evaluation of what an individual is doing. Certain systems are, are cookie cutter in their approach. Um, their scouting and evaluations might be totally velocity-based. Um, there's a lot of reasons why it occurs. Um, the funny thing currently, just to regress for a second, is, um, you know, there isn't a day that doesn't go by when uh, when the uh, national media talks about how uh, how phenomenal the Milwaukee Brewers are in drafting and developing pitchers. But yet all those pitchers that were drafted and developed that are all-stars on the big league roster were a majority of them were from, from the prior regime. When that prior regime was in existence, the thought process was that the Milwaukee Brewers hadn't developed any pitching. So it, it comes and it goes. Um, but there's very few. There's very few. Like over the years, if you think back to the old St. Louis Cardinals, they were outstanding at it. Los Angeles Dodgers, they were very good at it. You go back to when uh, the Baltimore Orioles, uh, extremely good. Uh, you go back to when the Mets were were, were pumping out uh, Doc Gooden, Jason Ingram, Pulsifer, all those guys. Even though some of them got hurt, a majority of the the development staff in the Mets at the time were were uh, had come from the Oriole organization. Um, <clears throat> You know, so some of that success had followed them. The point of why I'm bringing this up is that, and yet we still see amateur baseball mimicking the training protocols of major league baseball organizations. And yet a majority of those organizations are not very good at developing, evaluating and developing pitchers. So whether you want to call it a, a self-fulfilling prophecy or, or maybe we can start to understand it's almost like a cancer. It just keeps growing. It just keeps growing. Um, the other part that occurs during this process is that if you look at all the, the, the major um, training protocols, the people that have become the people or organizations or companies that have become famous for their products or their training protocols or whatever, um, over the years, they, they do what I call a lot of backtracking in, a, in adapting their training protocols because they're taking a lot of theories and philosophies based upon the numbers that they're coming up with um, in their research. And they're, then trying to adapt it to uh, a specific population or a general population of baseball players. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, I usually don't bring up names because they can get a little bit uh, taken out of context. So there's one organization that it prided itself, and it still does, on throwing velocity uh, was one of the original organizations that that was their main selling point throwing velocity in my years of scouting oh i can go back to maybe uh, 
2009-2010, starting around that um, time period, this one organization became very famous. Two of them became very famous because a very uh, controversial picture was being scouted at the time and the conversations were going back and forth on his training philosophies, his protocols, all these different things he was doing. And most of it was a coordinated max effort. Uh, they were using all the correct terminology, closed chain kinetic work and everything like that, but they were selling out for velocity. And then on the major league level, some of these um, principles and protocols weren't being accepted as quickly as I think this the organization wanted them to be for their for their own success. So they changed their training protocols and came out with new products for the general public to purchase that would help your fastball command. So they took some of their existing products, changed the training protocol, and then called it their fastball command program. The interesting thing about that is they did not go back and say some of the earlier training methods that we used in order to increase velocity were not that correct and we had to change them a bit. Um, you see a lot of people over time, they've written a lot of books, a lot of training manuals, this, do this, this, do that. Uh, and over the years, their training philosophies and protocols and how they do it change. A lot of times they don't just change a little bit as an ad adaptation to what the original program was. They change night and day. And the problem what I have with all of that is that the general public, especially the youth development, <clears throat> is ends up kind of being like the guinea pigs because all these philosophies and protocols change. Now, in the natural dynamic of life, I think it was Lao Tzu, the Chinese philosopher, said that um, the mark of true intelligence is when I wake up tomorrow, I can change my mind because I live in an ever-changing dynamic world. So change and adaptation is inevitable in order to be successful. But we sell chapter one as the end all be all. And then more people purchase those products or those philosophies and protocols and adapt them to their young pitchers. No and, accountability. There's, there's, there's very little, if any accountability. Exactly. I, the question I have now, you know, obviously, you know, not to, oversimplify what we're talking about here, but training a pitcher is hard. Tra training a major league pitcher is to, uh, training somebody to become a major league pitcher is even harder. And it, pe people are approaching this in a very cavalier, very nonchalant, almost, and I'm, I'm all about capitalism, but not at the expense of, of young kids and their, their bodies and their minds and, and their potential, you know, enjoyment of a sport. 
when, when you're, when you're training and I, I don't want to skip ahead, but, and, and please backtrack if we have to, but when you're training these kids, it seems like they're, 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 they're locked in on the tiny little minuscule. I mean, I, I don't want to go, we can talk muscles first, but movements that mat, don't matter until you train the big things first, whether it's muscles, whether it's concepts, um, whether it's, you know, particular, uh, structure in the pitching foundation, but, uh, is, is that safe to say? Yes. Yeah. In, in fact, that's my, uh, if you would phrase it as pet peeve of, of a lot of these training products, um, they show you, you know, they show you an advertisement where, uh, major successful major league pitcher is using a, a particular product and then um coaches or moms or dads runs to dick sporting goods or where the local sporting goods and purchase that product for their 11 year old and uh, it it that 11 year old shouldn't be using that product until they're easily in their late teens to early 20s um and it misses the it misses the point because <clears throat> all parents out there can understand the chaos and the craziness of having a family of two to three, four, whatever children. And there's practice schedules, there's game schedules, there's multi sports. Saturday morning, mom's gotta take the twelve year old to his game. Um heading east and the dad's got to take the 10 year old to his game and tournament heading west. And, you know, they're going to FaceTime one another and they're going to extend and they're going to use game changer and everybody. And, and I mean, it's, it's complete chaos as far as the travel and uh, the scheduling and the family obligations. So practice time and training time is limited. So, what you see when you go to these ballparks is one, a lot of the uh, training schedules aren't specifically designed for the pitchers. They're mainly described for batting practice and an infield practice and that type of drill work. So there's not real specific time because on a majority of these uh, young teams, they might have 11 guys on a team and they'll go to a tournament where they might end up playing five or six games, which is, you know, a big invitational. And most everybody on that team, at least seven to nine of them are going to pitch. So one thing that we do, that's kind of similar to what you're talking about is the guys that pitch for us, whether it's starting pitcher or a guy coming in the relief, I will not play them in the field the following game because I want them doing their post-game pitching rehab after that. Um, you know, whether it's some guys like to throw a, a short little a bullpen just to work it out after, but their arm exercises, their mechanic exercises, their running exercise to get them that full experience of, okay, I just, I will let them hit because obviously, you know, you get the, like we're talking about that tournament structure, parents are paying money to go there. These kids want to play, at least let them hit. Uh, so I will I will put them in the lineup as a hitter, but I will not let them play the field because I want them doing their proper post game pitching rehab. And if they can't do it the next day, I said the same thing. I'll hit you, but if you're feeling funny and we feel like we need to do, if you don't get your pitching stuff in, 
that full day after, I'm not putting you in the field. Right. Um, or I put them in a position where they don't have to exert too much throwing energy, a first base, a second base, uh, so to speak. So. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Um, you know, if the, if the uh, coaches and the parents ended up on the same page and the goal was to develop the players, um, then more of those philosophies that you're using uh, would be adapted. Um, what do they want out of these tournaments? What's the biggest thing they walk away wanting? These well, they want to win. They want those shiny little rings, those yeah. $22 rings because they pay $400 a kid to play in the tournament. And- right. And, and here's the thing. There is nothing wrong with a 10-year-old feeling excited because they played in the championship game and they won. Or maybe they hadn't been to a championship game and hadn't really played a meaningful game on a Sunday uh, in in a couple of seasons. So they just want to get to the championship. There's nothing wrong with that from the, from the player's perspective. But when the win the ring, get to the championship, win the championship is the only thing that matters to the coach or the parent, then we run into the problems. Yeah, well put. Well put. So when we get back to the larger muscles, now if you talk to any orthopedic surgeon, top-level physical therapists that are dealing in a lot of these arm injuries, one of the things that they'll tell you is that the basis for a lot of this happening is the improper training mechanisms, improper throwing protocols, workloads in game activity that's being placed on 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds. And that's why all of a sudden you're seeing an increase in Tommy John surgeries in, let's say, the 14 to 15-year age group. That a lot of this damage is being done prior to the actual year that they get injured or season they get injured. But then you see a lot of training protocols and they're all centered on either throwing um, throwing weighted balls, selling off for velocity, different like that, or rotator cuff exercises, all types of different things that are necessary after we've successfully trained the large muscles of the body that make up the kinetic chain. Because if we train the large muscles of the body correctly, and we use closed chain kinetic exercises as simple as bending down and picking up a box properly. The synergistic muscles, the muscles that are there to stabilize the joints, I call them the fine tuners, are going to be activated and trained anyway. And then as the body is moving in a proper, efficient manner, then you can start to specifically target as your young player becomes a teenager, the rotator cuff, the scapular stability and, and different things like that. Um, you know, if, if you date back, you know, many years ago, there was all kinds of different research that just stated that, you know, doing squats was enough uh, core exercise. Now, whether you want to argue with it or not is, is not the point. The point is, is that those Postural stability muscles, those synergistic muscles, the muscles that help you with your balance and your posture and stabilizing your joints, 
they're being activated every single day that you do something. Um, so it, it's not necessarily that a nine-year-old should be doing um, external internal rotation of their rotator cuff as a training exercise in order to get those muscles stronger. Now, you want to use uh, some tubing exercises as a warm-up to your activities? That's fine. It's not, in my book, a applicable training tool for a young pitcher, little league age pitcher. It is more important that they learn how to squat properly, how to deadlift properly. In the in the um, in the uh, kettlebell training vocabulary, they call those grinds. So squats, quad variations, deadlift variations, presses, pulls, um, those type of things are the basic things. No matter what, whether you use a kettlebell or body weight or, you know, uh, a specific barbell weight, which is um, conducive, which is at the level of that child at the time, those are the type of movements. Now, think about it. You go down even in age. So say, you know, under 10 years old, all of that stuff can be done body weight. All of that is accomplished by doing um you know, old school calisthenics or, uh, or, you know, uh, bear crawls or, or, or crab walks or uh, wheelbarrow, you know, all those th type of things that people looked upon when they were younger thinking, ah, oh, that's no, that doesn't do anything. That's not beneficial. Um, but my point is that they're all closed chain kinetic activities. And when they're done properly, the body learns that the large muscles create all the force. Uh, and then we can graduate into throwing a baseball properly where the arm's going for the ride. Then we can start to work on because the large muscles are learning to create more and more force. Then as a teenager, we start to use the um, assistance muscles of the rotator cuff and the scapula stability and the smaller muscles uh, in the hip mobility with the hip flexors and as additional work because they need then at that point to get stronger because the larger muscles are producing more force the proper way. So when I go into a ballpark and I see an 11 year old doing cross symmetry, I'm like, he can't even bend down and touch his toes. So where would that time allotted be more beneficial in their overall development but we get our mind gets clustered with all these different things that we're supposed to do that sometimes we forget the basics i mean i i have, I have a i do a little fun thing with a new client i ask them um do you know what all good baseball players have in common and they you know they're they're good athletes. Uh, they love baseball, you know, all the standard responses. And I say, no. And this is all the while when I'm reaching out to shake their hand or I have their hand and I haven't let it, let it go yet. I go, all yeah. baseball players have strong hands. Yeah. 
And I said, you know how you get strong hands? Just squeeze them. You don't even need any apparatus. You don't need any equipment. And then when your mom and dad sees that you're dedicated enough that you put the popcorn down while you're watching a movie and you're squeezing your hands, you know, then mom will get you a couple of old towels that you can get out of the linen closet, and scrunch those towels up. Then maybe we'll, we'll buy a, a, a sponge ball for 99 cents. Then you're really dedicated and you're doing your work. Then dad'll you know buy you some hand squeezers, and then one day bucket of rice that's cheap. Yeah, exactly. But the point is, is that there's basic things. There's basic things. I mean, it. it I get a flashback to when I was about um, oh, probably twelve years old, thirteen years old, and I had an older cousin that played some football out on Long Island, and. Um, he had, for Christmas, gotten, you know, that first 110-pound vinyl weight set. And, you know, his mom was, you know, my aunt was swearing that he had gotten so much stronger. It really helped him, you know, especially playing football. And uh, so I kept asking my dad, when can I get some weights? When can I get some weights? And he'd be like, what do you mean weights? What do you mean weights? What, what do you need weights for? He says, you, you want to work out? Put your army boots on and ride your bike up and down that hill. Your legs will get stronger. <laughs> and it, it's these type of things. It's the basic things. Even going back to our discussions on manual labor. Let's get the young guys in shape. The thing popped up the other day. There was an article on... Um, I forget the name escapes me right now, but Back, oh, it was. It, I don't know the athlete that they used, but John F. Kennedy, when they put together the basic uh, physical education guidelines for the public schools, and it was the the minimums and that needed to be attained: a sit up, uh, uh, push ups, uh, pull ups, uh, climbing the rope. A lot of the things that when you because I'm much older than I think a majority of my audience. You were, you were a young kid in elementary school in the late sixties. This was your PE, PE class. How many, how many chin-ups you could do pull-ups? How many push-ups can you do? And I can remember, I saw an article and the minimum standard. And I think 1968, was 16 push-ups and eight pull-ups. Now, when you look at minimum standards, they're, they're in the single digits. Yeah. And you know where those standards came from way back when? I knew they were instituted when John F. Kennedy put together this exercise council, but I didn't know exactly where the standards was well, likely it, the military. Yeah. It was in conjunction with our military. We, we, uh, I think it may have been one of our, it may have been our very first roundtable show. Uh, myself, Kevin, Sal Marinello, Mark, uh, Will George. Sal talked about the sniper position, how the sniper position used to be down, feet flat to the ground, squat all the way down with that flexion in the heels and the Achilles. And but every standard that we had from flexibility to strength was instituted from military to phys ed with the idea of, you know, there being a link between our youth developing that. I guess I don't want to say that fighting mentality, but you know, the, 
the the physicality needed to be a, a soldier. And uh, we've gotten away from that all the way around. I mean, I, we don't want to get into our society right now, but those standards that you mentioned, those lesson standards have crept their way into our school systems and our, our military, unfortunately. Yes, yes. And um, so then that, that brings us, when you know, you're, I'm going over this um, close chain kinetic work. Young people should work on uh, those basic exercises, how to squat, hinge properly, hip mobility is going to benefit from it, variations of squats, variations of deadlifts. Um, and like I said, a lot of this could be done with body weight and or two cans of soup. It's nothing, nothing major. Um, presses, pulls, okay? and then as you, and then as you advance into your teenage years, then you start adding the uh, the advanced dynamic movements of clean snatches, lateral movements, and swings. And when you get to that point, here's something that's very much overlooked in um, in the training of young players. Playing baseball is about creating force and absorbing force. It's about controlling force. That's why uh, dating way back, Sada had oh the uh, legendary home run champion of Japan, had his uh, hitting coach take Aikido classes because Aikido is a martial art where it's all about creating force, absorbing force, using the force of your enemy against itself. Um, this is what kettlebell training is all about. And sometimes we look at kettlebell training as, you know, the, the old Russian tax masker and the 50-pound and the kettlebell and the feats of strength of the old, you know, the uh, legendary strong men of like, I guess the first guy was like John Sandow or all those type of things and the Weeder family and the whole thing. No, it's um, it's a form of exercise of creating force and controlling force, creating energy and controlling energy. Um, that's what the pitching mechanic is. Stabilizing your shoulder joints, stabilizing your scapula, stabilizing your spine proper hip mobility. Uh, that's a, that's a Turkish getup, uh, which is an exercise, a basic exercise in, in kettlebell training. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. The great thing about it when you're dealing with a younger population is one, it's very inexpensive. Two, you don't need a lot of space. Three, you can start with one kettlebell. Let's say you start with a 10-pound kettlebell or 5-pound kettlebell. You get stronger. You get the next kettlebell, 15 to 20. You get stronger. Oh, but it follows the entire thing when I say, how do you get strong hands? Squeeze. And if you show your mom and dad that you can squeeze your hands and get stronger, then it'll buy you a ball. they buy you a ball, then it'll buy you a piece of equipment. So one, if the young player isn't dedicated enough and really wants to put the work in, you know, why are we spending, um, you know, $400 a month to go train at some specialty place, you know, that's really designed for uh, college athletes and professional athletes. Um, so I, I'm a big proponent of it. I use it in a lot of different ways. Um, 
with my clients. Limited cost, close oh, yeah. chain kinetic exercises to work, and limited space, and then you graduate from there. You go to a little play it again sports where they do re, the, uh, reused equipment. You can get a kettlebell for five bucks. Oh, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and and like I said, you can still think of those movements, and if you have the ability that you you know. You know, your dad has a garage gym or something like that. It's, you know, it's still going to be done, but we're still looking at the emphasis on closed chain kinetic work. Uh, even if it's body weight for eight, nine year olds, you know, and then move up from there. It's a gradual progression. It's not um, having my 12 year old train, like we've said in the past, the 42 year old Roger Clements. Um, the interesting thing about all this, Dave is that um, I was, uh, over the course of the last couple of months, I've uh, been lucky enough to talk to a few people. And uh, my brother, who's the uh, head baseball coach at Don Bosco Prep, he, he kidded with me. Uh, he's been there for 10 years, and, and he has a successful program, successful baseball program. But in the past two years, he's won back-to-back uh, non-public school New, New Jersey State Championships. And this past year, um, I guess through writers, local writers and state officials or whatever, they were voted the uh, number one team in New Jersey uh, of all the schools, not just the non-public schools. So because of the uh, affluence of the population that goes to school there and and the notoriety that they've had with their success uh, um, the past couple of years there's a lot of people that have contacted him that would like to uh, undertake different projects and stuff and you know my brother besides that's a full-time high school teacher he's got a family that all plays sports uh, you know so it's not like he can he's got a couple other oars in the water so it's not like he can just uh, undertake you know, any project that someone wants to come, uh, he's in an enviable position and something came along and he gave me a call and we've been working on this for three months. So very shortly, I've uh, started a project with him called uh, Pitching Kinetics. And um, that's why I had sent you the, the quick definition. So if, the audience doesn't mind. I'm going to give a quick, uh, quick definition of pitching kinetics because when we understand it, it's a lot of stuff that we've already spoken about on the show. Yeah. It refers to the study and analysis of various physical and mechanical forces involved in the act of pitching a baseball or softball. It involves examining movements, forces, and interactions between the pitcher's body and the ball throughout the pitching motion. By analyzing pitching kinetics, coaches, trainers, and researchers can gain valuable insights into the mechanics of pitching. Um, and it goes on a little bit more from there. But the interesting thing is uh, is the one line where it says the interaction between the pitcher's body and the ball throughout the pitching motion. Nowhere in there did it talk about 
the pitcher competing against the hitter or the uh, or the pitcher attempting to um, to do different things to increase velocity or or try too hard it was the interaction or the relation of the pitcher's body and the ball um, that becomes an interesting teaching concept that I've used and that's why when we decided to start this project so this project is going to uh, involve one of the top orthopedic surgeons in the New York metropolitan area. Um, it's going to be based out of North New Jersey initially. It's going to incorporate all the triple triple spin training principles and uh, throwing mechanics and training protocols. One of the top orthopedic surgeons uh, in the metropolitan area, one of the top physical therapists in the metropolitan area, both who've had extensive um, extensive experience um, over 30, 35 year careers involved in amateur baseball, collegiate baseball, and professional baseball. They've both of them have worked for major league organizations. Top notch pitching instructors schooled in the in the theory of triple spin mechanics and strength coaches, certified strength coaches. And the whole concept of the initial project is that um, I'll be doing uh, video analysis. I'll be making um, occasional trips up there, but I'll be doing video analysis breakdowns. The physical therapist will be doing complete biomechanical assessments and muscular, muscular uh, uh, efficiency and strength uh, testing. And then we'll put together uh, individual specific training protocols for each pitcher in the system in the uh, in the project to be then put in place over a annual throwing schedule for uh, the individuals that are involved, from the pitching instructors to the strength coaches to the physical therapists. So uh, I'll have more information um, coming up. <coughs> Excuse me. We'll be looking to expand um, because the majority of the analysis will be done by me and the exercise prescription. We're going to also take this uh, to uh, to the development of an app and then online training and other specific protocols that could be adapted to uh, other facilities if they're interested. So it's exciting news and uh I thank my brother and the people that are all involved in North New Jersey, New York metropolitan area for uh, seeing the need for this. Um, the one leading physical therapist um, looked over all the triple spin, triple spin training protocols and stated that if there was more people that understood this and tried to apply that, there'd be a lot less of uh, medical problems and injuries in, in young, young athletes. So he was uh, wholeheartedly aboard. And, um, in fact, <clears throat> I will not uh, divulge the name right now, but we're still working on, he had jury duty this week, or he'd be, uh, on with us this week. We're going to work out a schedule where we can have him, um, as a guest next week to go over some of the things that we're going to, uh, attempt to accomplish. As well as your brother, right? Eventually, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, my brother will will have to get a little creative. I'll try to figure something out because 
he's a high school school teacher by day. Tell, so, tell that gentleman, I, I would have I would have written a note for the physical therapist to, to get out of jury duty today. I could have given him a note, and then your brother Tim, I'll give him a note for study hall, get him out, come <laughs> in the and be on the show. Yeah, but I'm, I'm excited to uh, to just have those conversations next week because um, you know sometimes the audience can sit back and listen to us and, and they're um, even if they're thoroughly engrossed and, and following along. And, um, but sometimes just like in coaching uh, in any sport, it's good to hear uh, another voice that might say things in a, in a different manner, but still attempting to accomplish the same goals. So uh, I'm pretty excited for this to occur hopefully next week and for this project to get off the ground. Um, and eventually the goals are to add this process, um, into a facility, a local facility in the Charlotte Metro area. Um, we're going to, since I'm originally from New York and my brother is situated up there, some of the connections naturally fell into place to attempt to do this, um, up there in conjunction with his, uh, high school program at Don Bosco prep. So, we're going to see how it runs from there and, and, and see how expansion is possible. Yeah. Well, there's more indoor facilities and training facilities and uh, places to do this than there are Starbucks. So I, I would, I would encourage, because we have tons of, uh, you know, my, my deal with a lot of the, the, you know, they call them the gurus out there, the hitting and pitching is I lay off them on social, as long as they're tuning in and receiving what we're trying to offer here on the show. So, so far so good. So my message to them, I'm one-upping the relationship here that when this comes out, get engaged with it immediately because it will enhance what you're doing. It will make your environment safer. These kids will get better. Um, you're dealing with, uh, and, and Jim in particular, a gentleman who's done it at the highest level and has had the highest rate of pitchers pitch longer and healthier. He said that several times throughout the show. I hope you wrote that in bold ink on the top of your notepads today, um, while you're doing it. And, uh, you know, I, I thought of a, 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 an additional training mechanism. Give a shout out to my, my high school coach, Bill Gold. Uh, his his uh, son, Eric, was a fine shortstop, played at NAIA level. His, do- his granddaughter, Anna, is the home run leader at Duke. And uh, his grandson, Luke, was just drafted, I think, in the third round um, by the Tigers this year. Tremendous third baseman. I think he's playing second as well out of Boston College. But he used to have us fill – and we had a lot of pros come through our high school program in upstate New York. Uh, he used to have us fill tennis ball cans with sand, and that's how we did our shoulder exercises. Two tennis ball cans with sand. I had a little wheelbarrow with my sledgehammer in it and my bats and my tees, put those cans in there. Very inexpensive way to get your shoulder uh, workouts done with, with those. So, But uh, Jim, In fact, just to add to that, the individual who created – fill the tennis cans with sand in order to do at that time what's called your job exercises was Dr. Charles Green out of uh, Miami-Dade. I always get confused whether it was north or south. There was uh, two Hall of Fame coaches down there at the same time, Um, uh, Coach Maneri and Coach Green. So Dr. Charles Green, his son, is Charlie Green, who was a major league uh, backup catcher, outstanding uh, defensive catcher and catching instructor, and the current um, field coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers. Charlie and I would share an office, 
And his father, who was retired by that time, would come to spring training, come to instruction ball and sit in the office. And it turned out that um, going way back when I decided to uh, transfer out of Cornell University to see if I had any interest from the professional scouts, I had picked Dr. Charles Green's school as a school to go to until Mr. Ralph DeLula, who was the head of the scouting bureau, convinced me to stay local and that um, he'd keep an eye on me. And so I went to County College of Morris and uh, Mr. DeLula kept his word. But the whole concept of filling the cans with sands, uh, the tennis cans with sand was from Dr. Charles Green, who has a PhD in exercise science and, and baseball. His, his a, a insanely distinguished career in the game of baseball. Up until a couple of years ago, he was still writing for national collegiate newsletters and baseball newsletters on training and tro- proper training protocols. And there wasn't a day that went by that when I finally met Dr. Green, he was probably in his 80s. And every day he would have a new question for me on things that he saw on the field or things that he recalled from his past to compare different training protocols and different philosophies on how to get things done um, in an efficient and controlled manner. So it's just unbelievable that you, you bring up the fact that you used the, the old tennis cans filled with the sand. Yeah, that was 1987 to 1991, I believe we did that. And even younger, because he, Coach Gold ran a, a program I, different than a team. He had everybody from the sixth grade all the way up to the 12th grade doing the same stuff. Um, tremendous high school coach. Uh, he produced a wonderful family. His son was a very good shortstop, and his grandchildren are, are killing it right now. So, but yeah, it's, and we didn't, obviously, we didn't even plan that. That was uh, interesting that this high level PhD, dirt and plastic, it goes to show you, you can, you can, you can get it done without having to spend a ton of money. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. And in closing, Dave, um, because a lot of what we talked about today, you know, concerned, um, you know, some of the younger, younger age groups. Um, one of the things that I failed to, uh, to uh, let people know <clears throat> uh, in the past is I do a lot of my work for the, uh, the little league age groups, the elementary school kids on overall athleticism, a variety of sports, and a lot of baseball stuff at uh, Next Level Kids in Fort Mill. Now, that's the facility I use for the younger group because it's uh, it's a lot less intimidating than a lot of other places, you know, that if you'd mix the younger group in with, uh, you know, high school, college, and professional athletes, it's it gets, you know, a little much. One in attention span and focus and different areas of that. So... <clears throat> As always, you can contact me on my website, RooneyBaseball.com, uh, email CoachJim at RooneyBaseball.com. And if all else fails and you're in the local area, you can look up Next Level Kids and they have a way of contacting me and you can see all the different uh, services for the younger population that they uh, they afford um, in uh, not only uh, baseball, but exercise, speed and agility, all the different areas that we've talked about. Well, that's great. And we look forward to the app coming out. Obviously, we'll support that with the network and, and pump that out to our, we have 900 colleges subscribed to our show and, 
you know, we're grassroots MLB front offices. So we'll pump that out to anybody that wants to try it. And there's not a better guy to lead that charge. So I'm, I'm happy for you, Jim. And um, I'll certainly be, I'll be a supporter, but also a subscriber to that app. So make sure you let me know my, uh, my sons and, and my daughter actually pitches, believe it or not, our oldest daughter, baseball, not softball. Um, we'll, uh, we'll have all of them subscribing to it. So with that, you know, episode 296 here in the books, Real Voices of the Game, Toe the Rubber with Jim Rooney. Make sure if you have to re-listen to the episode because you, you couldn't keep up with the notes, do it again. It'll be worth the listen second time around as well. Reach out to Jim if you're in that area. He's going to be in Pigeon Forge this weekend. So if you see him out there, say hello. Uh, but another great show, Jim. We appreciate your efforts and, and, and thanks so much for a wonderful presentation today. Well, thank you, Dave. You guys have a uh, great weekend and uh, talk to you next week. Sounds good. Yeah.